Well, again, good afternoon. Our scripture reading this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 5. John's Gospel, chapter 5, and we're going to read together the first 18 verses. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was, ca- was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before we consider this passage, let's just ask for the Lord's blessing on his word. God, our Father, as we come to your word, we find ourselves in great need of your Holy Spirit to illumine your word to us so that we might see and understand, to plow up the fallow ground in our hearts so that we might receive it. And so we pray, our God, that by your Spirit you would make your word good to us and that in all that is said it would be for the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus, for we ask it in his worthy name. Amen. Well, as we continue in our study of John's gospel, we're reminded that in the first four chapters that we've been through, Jesus is, for the most part, working with individuals. But as we move to the fifth chapter of John's gospel, we see a transition. As the Lord's works are seen, observed by a broader audience, particularly the Jewish or the, uh, the Jewish elite, and it, it, and it ignites a conflict. Now, it's not that in this um, sign as well, it is just to one person, but there is a greater crowd that observes this, and as we said, that ignites a conflict between 
the Lord and the Jews. Well, the chapter begins with Jesus taking his second trip to Jerusalem. We read of five trips in the Gospel of John that our Lord takes to Jerusalem. And as with the first visit, his first visit to Jerusalem, there is that which he finds there that grieves his heart. The first time he had come, as you recall, when he had cleansed the temple, he had found them defiling his father's house. And now on this second trip, he finds them defiling his father's feast. Specifically, what comes in question here is the Sabbath. We're not told which feast this is, but that was where the controversy arose. They had been using his father's house for their greed, and now they use his father's feasts for their own glory. Now, you'll recall that the Lord himself had instituted seven feasts, and we read about them in the Old Testament. There was the Sabbath, there was the, the uh, Passover, the Feast of first fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. And it's the first one of those feasts that is the source of the controversy here. But I want you to notice how these feasts are referred to by God when they are instituted in Leviticus 23. So note, in Leviticus 23, the first verse, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Now, I want you to compare that to what you read here in the first verse. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. When those feasts were instituted, they were the feasts of the Lord. My feasts, said the Lord. Now they have become merely a feast of the Jew, Jews. What had been for the glory of God had become for the glory of man, for the elite to glory in their eliteness. The Lord had given these feasts to gather his people together, to give them rest from their labor and to focus their hearts upon him. But now they seek to use the Sabbath to withhold rest from an invalid and keep him at a distance. But while the religious elite can feast and rest with invalids lying there destitute, there can be no rest for the Son of God in the presence of the effects of sin. And so he performs his third sign, which not only heals the invalid, but gives us a proper understanding of what it is to enter into God's true Sabbath rest. So with that little introduction, I want us to consider this passage under three headings. The divine initiative, the divine word, and the divine work. The divine initiative, the divine word, and the divine work. Let's start with the divine initiative. Well, Jesus comes to this place called Bethesda. It means house of mercy. It was located near the Sheep Gate in the northeast corner of the city of Jerusalem. And it sounds like a very beautiful place with its colonnades and pools, recent 
archaeological findings reveal that there was actually two pools here. They were in the shape of trapezoids, we read. And together from end to end, they were 318 feet long. It all sounds very nice. Sort of sounds like a resort, doesn't it? Until you get closer and you realize that all these people lying around the pool are sick and dying. Well, what are they doing there? Well, they believe that this pool has miraculous healing properties. And we see that in verse 7. This man was waiting for the water to be stirred up. Now, in our ESV, if you're looking at the Pew Bible, you won't find verse 4 there because it's not in the earliest of manuscripts. But if you were to read that, you sort of get a bit of context. It says there that the waters were stirred up by an angel and the first person to enter was healed. And that's what these people that were around this pool were waiting for. Now, whatever healing properties this water may have had, we don't know. But it's hard to imagine that these people, some of which had been there for a long time, that there was no validity in it. But whether or not these waters had miraculous powers to heal these people, for those that were there, this was their last hope. It was their last hope. But then our evangelist focuses our attention on one man who's been lying there for 38 years. He's an invalid. He can't move. He can't do anything. He's just lying there. And our Lord comes to him and asks, do you want to be healed? Now you might say this morning, what kind of a question is that? Do you want to be healed? Of course he wants to be healed. He's been lying here for 38 years. But the Lord's question evokes a rather interesting response from the man. He says, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Well, Jesus hadn't invited him to go for a swim. He'd asked him if he wanted to be healed. But you see, this man, who had been pining away for 38 years, believed that the only solution to his condition lay in the waters of those pools, just like the Samaritan woman believed that the only solution to her thirst lay in the waters of that well. The problem was that he couldn't get into the pool at the right time, and 38 years of trying had not changed that. You know, what a torturous condition to be in. It would almost be better not to have such a pool than to be so have such a debilitating disease and be so close to a solution and yet not even able to take advantage of it. No ability to avail himself of this solution. And if you think about it, it was sort of the same condition that Israel was in seeking life through the law. There was nothing wrong with the law. The problem was that they couldn't keep it. Had this man been able to get into the pool at the exact right time before anyone else, perhaps he would have been healed. But the problem was that he simply couldn't. And so so the pool, with all its beauty, the beauty of this place, and all that was there was of no value to him. But it seems he still held out hope that the pool was his answer. 
All he just needed was a little bit of help, just a push at the right time. And then he could do the rest. Then he'd be good. You know, there is an idea circulating around Christian circles, and I suppose it's been with us since the first century. And it's the idea that I can do, and I need to do something to contribute to my salvation. And the analogy sort of goes like this, that sin is a sickness, and Christ has the cure, a medicine, and all I need to do is to reach out and take it. But the problem is that we were not born sick with sin. We were born dead in sin. And the problem with dead people is that they can't reach out and receive the remedy because they are dead. We call this sometimes, we refer to this as total depravity. And it doesn't mean that everybody's as bad as they could be, but it means that the effects of the fall are so complete that we would never even choose to receive the remedy unless God first worked in us to do a work of repentance and bring us to himself. That we would never seek God unless he first sought us. That's why we say that regeneration precedes faith. God must seek me before I would ever seek him. He must take the initiative. I would never take it on my own. And that's what we have here in this sign. The Lord takes all the initiative. The invalid in this sign does not plead with the Lord, as does the father of the dying son in the previous chapter, or as the Samaritan woman who says, yes, please give me this living water. No, our Lord takes the initiative. What I want to say this morning is, do we realize what a blessing it is to our souls when we recognize that our salvation is entirely a work of God? Those who miss this and think that some small part of it depends on them are never able to really enjoy the rest that Christ has brought them into, the true Sabbath rest. Because if they believe that there was some part that they had to perform in receiving their salvation, they have to conclude that there also must be some part that they have to perform in order to keep their salvation. And so there is never real peace. But what do the scriptures say? What do we get in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 10? For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Thank God. Thank God for this divine initiative. Well, let's move to our second point, the divine word. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. Now to say get up to an invalid, it sounds like an impossible command. To say get up to my teenage kids at 7 o'clock in the morning when they're able-bodied seems like 
an impossible command in their ears. But how does it sound, how does get up sound in the ears of a man that has been lying there for 38 years? But at the divine word of the eternal God, strength returns to this man's atrophied limbs, and immediately he gets up, takes up his bed, and walks. And this should not surprise us, because the same word that spoke the universe into existence, this was the same word that did that. And next week we're going to read that the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And in the upcoming chapters, in in chapter 11 of John, we're going to read about a man, Lazarus, who died. And after three days of being in the grave, the Lord stands at his tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. And this man who has been dead for three days comes forth. And someone has said that if the Lord had not put the name Lazarus in front of that command, come forth, every grave would have opened. In fact, the scripture says as much in in verse 28 and 29 of our chapter, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. This is the power of the divine word. And this, brothers and sisters, is the same power that works in us. In the spirit of God wants us to know, as we have in Ephesians, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us, who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so this invalid invalid, hears the divine word. Strength returns to his limbs, and immediately he gets up, takes up his bed and walk. And after having been on the ground for 38 years, he must have felt like he was 10 foot, 10 feet tall. He must have felt that he was moving at the speed of a racehorse. For the Lord never gives a command, but that he also gives the power to obey that command. Never say that you cannot do what God commands. And never attempt to do what the Lord commands in your own strength. For the divine word, with the divine word comes a divine power so that you may say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But the divine word not only brings life and strength, it also brings liberty and boldness. And we see that here, for when he is challenged by the Jews, and they tell him that it's unlawful for him to take up his bed and walk on the Sabbath, he rightly judges that one who has the authority to heal his incurable disease also has the authority to give him this liberty. So he says, the man that healed me said, take up your bed, or get up and take up your bed and walk. But you see, legalists don't like liberty. They want to keep you in chains. They prefer an imprisoned invalid who could be isolated, for a man with freedom and mobility was a threat to their authority. And it should not surprise us that there will be an increasing 
effort to suppress freedoms in this country because a free people are a threat to a totalitarian regime. They're a threat to Satan's kingdom. It should not surprise us to see bills like C6 that seeks to keep people in chains of sin for people that are imprisoned are no threat to Satan's agenda. And those who follow in the steps of the Lord Jesus Christ and declare the liberating, life-giving divine word will be persecuted just as he was. But Jesus came to set the captives free. And he declares that if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Well, the divine word brings freedom. But beware of the efforts of the enemy who seeks to put you back in chains. Beware lest you think that our enemy's efforts are confined to attacking our civil liberties. For there is another battle that rages that seeks to put you back in chains, the chains of sin. And for that, let's move to our last point, the divine work. We've talked about the divine initiative. We've talked about the divine word. Now we're going to talk about the divine work. Well, the man could tell that, could not tell the Jews when they asked who had healed him because Jesus had withdrawn into the crowd. But then it's very interesting that it says Jesus finds him. Um, And he says to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse happens happen to you. So here we get into the uncomfortable question of the connection between sickness and sin. The connection between sickness and sin. And it's not my purpose to get into this this morning other than to say this, that we know that when someone is sick or is otherwise afflicted, it's unwise to assume that the sickness or affliction is a result of sin. In many cases, it is not. And we see that in John 9 and 1 John 5. And Job's friends had to learn this lesson the hard way. But with that said, if Scripture makes the connection between sickness and sin, we cannot avoid it. And clearly it does here. Jesus makes the connection here that sin would lead to a worse thing. The Apostle Paul makes the connection in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says that for not discerning, because of not discerning the Lord's body, this was leading some to become weak and ill and even dying. And the Apostle John makes the connection in 1 John 5, 16, when he talks about a sin leading to death. So whether or not this man's 38-year condition had been the result of sin, one thing is clear, that continued sin would lead to a worse thing. The Lord says so. But the point here is that Jesus does not just want to release the man from the fruit of sin, but from the root of sin. That is what the divine work does. What is the point of being healed from a 38-year infirmity only to be unable to resist what's going to draw you right back into that again? But those who have experienced a divine work of salvation, have not only been set free from the fruit of sin, but also from the root. The old self has been put to death, and we have a new life. That is why we are called saints. 
We possess a divine nature that has no appetite for sin, a nature that desires what Christ desires and only what Christ desires. That is the result of a divine work. That is why we're not merely sinners saved by grace. No, that's not the position that we are brought into. No, we are clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. We are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. We are seen by God in God's eyes as as pure as Christ himself and loved as Christ himself is loved. That is the position that we are put into. And when we are constantly groveling over what we were instead of remembering what we have been made, that becomes an occasion for sin. But John says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Well, I feel maybe some of us squirming a little bit at this, because if you're like me, you say, but I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, but I do sin on a daily basis. How does that happen? Does that mean I'm no longer a Christian? No. It does not. But when I sin, I am not living in the new life that I have been given. I am not surrendered to the Spirit of God abiding in me. And this grieves the Holy Spirit. And he will work in me to bring me to conviction so that I repent. So that communion with my God, not salvation, but that communion with my God can be restored. And until I respond to the conviction of the Spirit, I become most miserable. But here's the point. If there is no conviction, if there is no repentance, if there is no coming to the light, and day after day, week after week, month after month, I can continue in my sin without any kind of conviction, then there is no reason for me to believe that a divine work has ever been done in me in the first place. No reason to believe that I belong to him at all. For the work that God does is a divine work that does not just cleanse away my sins, but puts me away. The old self is put to death. Now, this is very important because it's the key to overcoming temptation. And especially at a time like this when we spend so much time isolated and we're in this struggle with temptation. The key to overcoming temptation is not to try to rehabilitate the old life and to beat myself up over the things that I think I want to do. No, it's to consider that to be dead. I was saying to the youth yesterday that when we are tempted with a sin, if we belong to the Lord, we can honestly say, I don't want that. That is not what I want. And we can live in that life. It is to recognize that the thing in me that is attracted to sin is dead and that I have a life that has no appetite for sin whatsoever. And that's the subject of Romans 6, which obviously we can't get into this morning, but it's a good place to start in our struggle with temptation. Now, I think perhaps the question that the Lord was really asking this man when he asked him, do you want to be healed, was not just do you want to be healed from your condition, but do you want freedom from the sin that puts you, that will put you back in chains. Do you really want to be healed from that? And I, I need to ask you that question this morning. Do you really want to be healed? Or are you enjoying your sin too much? You can't have true liberty without Christ. And you can't have Christ if you are unwilling to turn from your sin.
If you are unwilling to turn from your sin, then you need to ask yourself whether the Lord has really done a work in your life at all. And you know, I want to say it's possible to have very fond feelings towards Christians and even to say a prayer of thanksgiving when something good has happened in your life, but do not mistake those feelings for saving faith. One of the proofs of saving faith is that we do not continue in sin. For how shall they that are dead to sin live any longer therein? It is Christ's work in us that saves us, not our work. Let's be clear on that. But when there is a divine work, there will always be fruit. Well, the Jews confronted with the divine work insisted that it must stop because it was the Sabbath. After all, they reasoned, God had rested on the seventh day of creation and instituted the Sabbath to commemorate this. But Jesus answered, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. You know, one thing that the religious leaders could not deny, even though they had added some 39 additional um, requirements to the Sabbath day, they could not deny that from the dawn of creation, God had continued to work without stop, without rest, in sustaining the world. And this work that the Father was engaged in without rest was the work that the Son was engaged in as well. Not just the sustaining of the world, but reconciling the world to himself. And that's why we have in 2 Corinthians 5 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's what Jesus was saying. And the implications of what the implication of what Jesus was saying was not lost on them. He was claiming to be the Son of God, equal with God, and they rejected it with everything that they had and desired to destroy him. Well, but what about you? What have you done with the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you recognized that he is indeed the Son of God? and bowed your knee to his lordship? Or have you rejected him as those Jewish leaders did? Do you really want to be healed? Do you really want to be healed? Or do you love the sin that enslaves? If the Spirit of God this morning is bringing you under conviction of sin, then I urge you, do not turn away. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. And for those of us that know and love the Lord, remember, remember that he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 20, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. You know, there are many... Bethesda's about us today. Many invalids looking for freedom and healing. And we have, brothers and sisters, the word of reconciliation. We have what they seek. Our Lord has sent us to set the captives free. And the question this afternoon is, will you go? Forces of evil have been arrayed against those who would dare to declare the truth and the liberating message of the gospel. But if God before us. Who can be against us? 
A divine power is ours. As the hymn writer put it, that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Well, we need strength for this battle, brothers and sisters, and that's why we come to the Lord's table each Lord's Day. Because in these emblems that the Lord has given to us, tokens of his body and his blood, he reminds us of his love for us, that he gave his body for us and shed his blood for us, that we are his and that he is ours. And when we come to this table together, joined by the strongest bond on earth, the Spirit of God, who has made us brothers and sisters in Christ, we gain strength for the week ahead. So let's come to the Lord's table now.